I, I put all the questions, I hope, I mean, I hope I put all the questions that you posted uh, into a file. If your question isn't there, it's not because I was avoiding it, it's because I was incompetent or something. And uh, if you want to look at them, I've posted them on Google, so if you've got your computer and you want to find them, uh, then I've sent you, then I, they're there by now in your emails. Um, so I've got 64 questions. Um, and what I'm going to do is, uh, for 25 minutes, the verses or insights that are particularly come back to you. Uh, and then for another 25 minutes, I'll have a go at some more questions. And then in the last 10 minutes, uh, we will do the thing that it says is number one on this list of questions, which is I would request that we take some time to pass the break for the sort of California. Um, but we'll also pray, I know that I know of at least three people who for whom this is their last class at Fuller. And so we'll get them to um, say a word and we'll pray for them as well. Um, so what I'm going to do is work down these questions, uh, saying something about the ones that I think I can say something about, and jumping over the ones that I've got no idea what to say about. Um, and if I get to the end of the ones that I think I can say something about, I'll have to go back to the beginning and say something about the ones that I've got nothing to say about. Okay? So I'm still here as they come. Number two, then, is where is the second coming mentioned by the prophets? Much of Christendom waits the certainty of Jesus on his fulfillment of prophecies in the second coming. But this is absent, or seems to be absent from the prophets. Doesn't this legitimate those, e.g. Jews, who object to the identity of Jesus as the Messiah? Um, well, it certainly is the case that, um, uh, that, that many Jews would say, uh, we know that the Messiah hasn't come. You've only got to walk around Los Angeles to see that. <laughs> Um, the reign of peace and justice has not arrived so the Messiah has to come. Um, and, and maybe that fits with the fact that Jesus wasn't very keen on being called the Messiah. Uh, you remember when Peter, uh, Peter um, said he was the Messiah, he said, well, don't go tell anybody that. Um, and, uh, and began to talk about that, about being the Son of Messiah. Um, and maybe that was because, or maybe one can at least link that with the fact that Jesus didn't bring about the reign of peace and justice. He may have been abroad, he may have, he did bring about a little bit of the now, but an awful lot of the not yet was left. Um, and, and so uh, what the prophets do is provide Jesus with a monumental agenda for what he needs to do um, in coming again. Um, Martin Buber, who I mentioned, I'm not sure whether it was him or whether it was some. Yeah, I think it was Martin Buber, who was very sympathetic with Christian folk and was talking with um, some Christian leader and about whether Jesus really was the Messiah. Uh, and, uh, and and I think Martin Buber said, and when he comes, ask him whether he's been whether he came before. Um, but I hope he didn't want to tell you. Now, I may not have told that story quite right, but it was some, something like along those lines. Uh, the it's quite reasonable for a Jew who, who notes the kind of things the prophets say uh, to reckon that there is a huge agenda for any would-be Messiah to fulfill, and, and it still is there to fulfill. Um, and in that sense, although the, the second coming isn't mentioned by the prophets in the sense that they don't say, oh guys, there's going to be two comings of the Messiah, they don't talk about the coming of the Messiah, that's to do with the way in which they're all 
describing the great thing that God is going to do. Uh, and then what happens is that God does something, but it isn't everything. So when Jesus comes along and says the kingdom of God is here, uh, well, there's, there's some now about that. But as I say, you, we, you, you, it's very easy. You only have to walk out here for a few minutes and discover that the kingdom of God isn't here. That God still has that much to do. In that sense, the, the prophets do talk about the second coming, but they don't refer, they don't describe it as the second coming. Um, if there was one thing you wanted us to glean from this course, what would it be? I don't, I don't think I want you to glean anything from the course. Uh, I want you to go away and have your minds blown um, and, and to think, Wow, there is all that stuff there, and it is worth, worth reading at it. Reading it, uh, studying it, spending a lifetime studying it. Often people's image of what seminary is about is that you come here, you find, you come here, you get all the material and the answers, you find all the answers, and then you go and spend 50 years um, giving other people the answers. And now you already know that that isn't what happens. What happens is you accumulate a lot more questions. Uh, and as I was saying today, actually, when we were having a conversation before, before class, um, with, with regard to, to his doing another degree, doing, degree doing, doing further degrees isn't about what you then discover. It's about what you learn about how to discover things. So if I coveted anything for you, it's that I want to, or what you, I want you to think that, trying, that reading the Bible is worthwhile, and also that it's possible. Um, so that, not not that you have learned everything while you're at seminary, but you but you're in a position, uh, you've taken a leap forward in your capacity, your energy, your motivation to the reading of Scripture you've in your entire lives, and you're never going to stop um, learning from that if you carry on doing um, What is your opinion, if there is any, the greatest change difference that occurred in the New Testament in relation to prophecy, prophets, and prophetic gifting. How do you reflect on Paul saying that prophecy is for the building and uplifting of the body of believers? Uh, nobody knows what New Testament prophecy is about, so I certainly haven't got an opinion. Um, but uh, I do um, entirely happy with Paul saying that prophecy is for the building and uplifting of the body of believers. I'm still confused by the yo-yoing of Yahweh. Practically yo-yo and Yahweh, practically, particularly if you like the Hebrews, they'd almost be the same. Um, which reminds me of the
I'm still confused by the yo-yoing of Yahweh, that is, he'll claim judgment will occur and then it won't. An example from Hosea, the alternation of I, Yahweh, will punish and destroy with I will not. Chapter 10, verse, uh, chapter, 10 verse chapter 11. Contradictory statements, such as Judah still walks with God, and Yahweh has an indictment against Judah. I know you've addressed this as we've gone along, but a summary conclusion course end would help. I think that's a good example of those, those chapters at the end of Hosea. Um, and I'd say it's, it's an example of how what very often scripture is offering to you is alternative scenarios. You choose. Um, here's the possibility of judgment. Here's the possibility of salvation. You choose. Well, that would... <laughs> what's the, there's an American technical term for that choice, isn't there? What's it called? Sorry? <laughs> So choose your own adventure. No, no, the cliche. Um, sorry? No, never mind. No, it's a, it's a stupid. Um, so what's the term that you use? No, never mind. Um, it, 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 you know, it, it's always what you're going to choose if you're offered that is. And yet, it isn't obvious. In practice, it isn't obvious. Um, but that's the choice that God puts before Israel. Please, what do you like? It's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a no-brainer. Yeah. Um, and another example that's kind of related is that, that when you're reading the second part of Isaiah, you find God, well, elsewhere, but I'm not think. Well, they're possible to find out the whole. You find God saying really negative things about the destiny of the nations. And then also talking about God's purpose, the nation, God's declaring that the nations are going to acknowledge him. Well, which is true. The answer is, you decide. Um, and it's, it's, I suppose it's an example, ties again up with some other things that people said about prophecy. That um, prophecy is always a statement of what God intends to do, uh, to make happen, good or bad. It's not like, it's not as if, if I say, um, well, this is a stupid one, wouldn't be in Holland, England, the sun will shine tomorrow, um, then, then I can't make that happen. I am, that's, that's a prediction. There's something prediction is prophecy. And I guess one of the things I'd love you to have grasped is that there is a difference between prediction and prophecy, and that you thought prophecy was prediction, but it isn't. It's a it's, it, prophecy is declaration of intent. It's God saying what God is going to do, good or bad, that is punishment or blessing. Um, and, and, the difference, and the difference arises from the fact that God is the one who's in the position to make those things happen. And that's also why uh, it's, I think we often have a picture of the context of the prophet. If you put together all, if you make a list of all the things the prophets have ever said, and it's a kind of random list, a bit like these, 600, these 64 questions, <coughs> and related to each other. As if, as if God had given 64 um, declarations of, what was, of things that were going to happen someday, and then you can kind of tick them off in a proofing fashion. That's not it. Because they're all God declaring, not, not God predicting things that will happen, but God declaring things that God intends shall happen, or warning about, warning about things that shall happen. But are then what they are always because they are an expression of, an embodiment of um, God's own purpose or principles in God's thinking or something of that kind. 
I like this one. If you were in charge of revising the Old Testament canon, what changes would you make in inclusion and or order? I was going to ask if you'd split Isaiah into three books, but after Monday's lecture, I think your answer to that would be no. Yeah, I think that's true. I don't really think about revising the Old Testament canon. I don't think about revising the New Testament canon. <laughs> Someday I'm going, to, I'm going to write a paper called The Epistle of the Hebrews. Um, do you hate it or do you love it? Or why? Yeah. Don't you hate it, don't you love it? Because I think the Epistle of the Hebrews, not because it was only book, but so screws people's um, uh, assumptions of what the Old Testament is about, um, that it's kind of disaster, really. And, what, and, um, and I'm... Um, I'm intrigued by the fact that I can't find the info about this at least, and I couldn't locate it. Somewhere in the back of my mind uh, is the, uh, the, the there's some evidence that Hebrews and Revelation were the last two books that ever got that the church was arguing about when it was sorting out the canon. And the Eastern Church accepted Hebrews, and the Western Church accepted Revelation, or it might be the other way around. And so, they, in effect, they said, "Okay, we'll have your book if you have ours." Now, I'm quite happy for God to let the church decide things like that. That's fine. Um, but I often think, I do therefore think about how history would have been different if they'd said, okay, we'll leave them both out. I mean, that would, end up, that would terminate all this stuff about pre-millennialism. That um, but that's the New Testament canon. What change would I make from the information? No, I think I'm more... Um, I'm so, I mean, yeah, I, I, I feel that I still have only scratched the surface of what there is, and I'm much more intrigued by the stuff that you don't appreciate is, much, is, is therefore much more worth the studying, because my brothers and sisters in Israel and my brothers and sisters in Christ thought this stuff was so good and so much from God, they put it in the Bible. And if I can't get it, there's something about me there, and therefore it's worth the studying more. So, if I think about the that um, I would have left out, I find that more interesting as a challenge than as a wish I could actually leave it out. Um, yeah. Oh, I mean, it would be nice if, it was, um, if there were no verses that could be understood as being um, rude about women. That would make life easier. <coughs> God seems to be satisfied with works in the prophets as a means of devotion to him. In other words, God's measure of faithfulness is what the Israelites are or and are not doing. Where thus is the need for Jesus if God seems to give out grace anyway? Um, the answer is that if um, if God didn't give grace anyway, give out grace anyway, then he wouldn't have come as Jesus. Uh, and if he hadn't come as Jesus, he wouldn't have been giving out grace anyway. Because these are not two separate things, but they are, they are two uh, expressions, embodiments, uh, of the um, nature of God. And, and God wasn't operating, when we, say, when we say God is satisfied with works in the prophets as a means of relation to him, that's, that's no more true um, about the 
that, that, that's no more true about the prophets than it's true about the New Testament. I mean, in the New Testament it says things like, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, thanks. Uh, if, you these, if you know these things that Jesus says, blessed are you if you do them. Um, if you think that grace, um, that, that, that because of um, the, the basis of, uh, of grace being the basis of your relationship with God, therefore you can do what you like, what you like, you've totally misunderstood everything that I've said so far in Romans 1 to 5. Shall we continue to sin all the first bit about? By no means. How can we who die to sin go on living in it? Um, and uh, the, um, the, per the, the thing that he, that he then goes on to explain is how we mustn't let sin exercise dominion in our mortal bodies to, let, to make us obey their passions. We must present our members to sin as instruments of wickedness. But present, so sorry, we must no longer present our members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present ourselves to God as those who brought from death to life present our members to God as instruments of righteousness. Sin will have no more dominion over you because you're not in the law but under grace. Um, the New Testament is quite clear that our relationship with God is based on God's grace, but also that that lays upon us an absolute obligation to be obedient to God. And if we don't see that, then we show that we, have, we show that we haven't understood the point about God's showing grace to us. And the same, the, lo the same logic is the one that's presupposed uh, by the Old Testament in general and by the prophets in particular. Um, God lays hold of Israel by grace. God will restore Israel by grace. Uh, in between, they are expected to give the response to God that's appropriate to people who have been blessed by God's grace. Um, the reason why God, God needed to keep showing grace to Israel through Old Testament times despite their disobedience, or rather because of their disobedience, um, and needed eventually to come, uh, to become incarnate and to die for us, because uh, of that inclination to take no notice, not to respond to God's grace. Um, if, if, if Israel had um, obeyed God, then Jesus wouldn't have needed to come to die for us. Or at least not for them. But the point is, they didn't. So, are you saying that Jesus was a kind of a more tangible way for us to see that God. No, I believe no. It's an object. It's an objective atonement, not just a subjective atonement. That's the question you're asking. Do you know that? No, you didn't know that. Do you? I've given you a piece of useless information. It's very important, but it is important that the, that the atonement was something objective, not just subjective. That is, the atonement was doing something for God, not just for us. Um, and uh, there, uh, there are ways of expressing that which I think are um, dubious uh, when you start talking about um, uh, very easily to talk about as if God was as if Jesus was paying a price to God paying, paying, a, paying a, uh, do, doing something to God God would have been um, punishing us but he was just a nice guy who paid the sacrifice for us by opportunity like that and we need to avoid that kind of objective thing going but it's rather that by God's being, the, the prophet, the story of the prophet shows frequently clearly, well, the whole Testament shows it, how Israel only, stands, Israel only stays in existence and stays in relationship with God because God pays the penalty for that. That is, here is Israel picking God in the face all the time, 
you as God saying, okay, okay, you're not going to put me off. I'm still going to carry on in a relationship with you. Okay, I'll chastise you. I'll put you down, but I'm never casting you off. God hit me again. No, I didn't cast you off that time, right? God keeps paying the penalty. God God makes the sacrifice for the relationship between God and Israel to stay in existence. Uh, and so that's something that, as it were, is going on within God. Even if Israel didn't know about it, which it looks like it didn't half the time, that's what objectively is going on. God is, God is making the sacrifice. God is paying the penalty to keep this relationship in existence. And when God comes in Christ um, and uh, lets Jews and Gentiles uh, crucify him, uh, and then says, you still, okay, you've tried, that's the, that's the worst thing you could do, but you still haven't put me off, I'm coming back to life again. Um, God is still thereby uh, making the sacrifice, uh, paying the penalty in order for this relationship to, to continue. Now, the fact that God is willing to do that is then the thing that, that as it were, appeals to us, that shows God's grace to us. But the reason why it shows God's grace to us is because God is in himself paying the penalty, making the sacrifice. That's what God is doing through the Old Testament story. That's what, in a sense, God is doing in the whole world story. Um, that, that's, that's the process in Christ. If God realized that the old way of dishing out grace was not enough, and decided to send Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice, well, I'm querying the presupposition of that, um, of that of this question, because I'm saying that the, the way of dishing out grace is the same in the How then should the prophets make us scared about the current state of the church if we know that we're just evolving as well? Well, that's, that's a version of Paul's question in Romans 6, you see. Shall we sing the grace of Okay, now we're saved, we can do what we like. Um, and, and Paul's answer to that uh, question about why the prophets should make us scared, Paul's answer to the equivalent question why the prophets should make us scared, scared is not, as I think Christians are inclined to assume, oh, if you disobey, you'll find you aren't amongst the elect after all. It's to say, you've misunderstood everything that I've said so far. Um, that, that God is God, and God has reached out to this people, um, and, and God wants this people to be his people, and God is making these sacrifices, paying his penalty for it. No, it won't be that people, as it were, God is saying to the prophets. Uh, and, and God is saying the same thing, uh, in the um, in the nature of the gospel, it's not to do. If you're if you think you're justified now, matter what, in other words, you can sit so you both may bound. The terrible thing about that is about how sad it is. You just haven't seen the point yet. Go back to the beginning. Go back to go. Do not to go back. Do not pass go. Do not collect two hundred pounds. Start again. Try and understand what this gospel thing is about. You know. Um, how did people attain salvation in the time of the Old Testament? Uh, I guess it depends, well, in a way, I've been talking about that. That is, they are, in, in, in any Old Testament or New Testament, you attain salvation on the, because God loves you, because of God's grace. Um, I, I, don't, you know, I don't know what else somebody wants me to say about that. Um, well, uh, on our part,
the the way whereby we come to belong to the saved people is by our trusting in God. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. If, yes. If, if the question is about what we what we do, then again, Paul's argument in Romans makes that clear. What what was it that made it? What was the basic deal with the way that God dealt with His people? The answer is God made a promise to Abraham, and Abraham trusted in God, and God counted him as righteousness. The only thing he did was trusted in God. And that Paul's great emphasis then is, this was all before there was any circumcision, it was before there was any Torah or anything, God, Abraham didn't do any of that stuff. All Abraham did in Genesis 15 was trust in God's promise. That's the only thing he needed to do, the only thing he had to do. Now, uh, obedience will then follow, um, but, but, but the thing that um, puts you in relation, puts you right with God, um, is your trust in God's promise, says Paul in Romans, arguing from... Um, the, uh, the the nature of the story of Abraham. As I often, um, sorry, just let me, uh, say another thing. Then come back. Come back. Um, when when Paul is expanding the nature of his gospel in Romans, we, we often think uh, some of the expressions presuppose that the, 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 a tricky question about Old Testament and Gospel for us is, is the Old Testament consistent with the Gospel? Or rather, it obviously isn't inconsistent. It obviously isn't consistent with the Gospel, so what do we do about it? Paul knows that, the, that that's the upside down, that will be the upside down way of phrasing the question. Because Paul knows that the Scriptures, i.e. the Old Testament, are God's truth, God's word. And the question he has to face in Romans is, is the gospel in keeping with the Old Testament? Not, is the Old Testament in keeping with the gospel? Um, is, is the gospel scriptural? Is the thing that he's got to demonstrate in Romans. Uh, one, of the key, one of the key issues he has to demonstrate. Uh, and he demonstrates that by showing how his understanding of how we attain salvation, how you get right with God, um, is uh, that the, his understanding that it involves trusting in Christ is uh, is the same as the understanding that's that's um, implicit in Abraham's relationship with God. So it's important not to treat to, to talk as if the law is essential to your salvation, which the Old Testament never believes, and which Jews never believed, uh, but which there were some Christian Jews who were trying to make people believe. Looks as that now to to Romans. Um, and that's to that's to turn the law into a means of salvation, which it was never designed to be. It was rather designed to be a means of your expressing your discipleship. I don't know, because I only know about the things that it says in the Bible. Um, though, um, a couple of things. One is that um, if, what, if, if, if that's what Vatican II says, then I'm kind of happy, uh, then, then I, don't, I kind of don't object to that. What Christians often say, I think the Paul says, is that if you haven't heard of Christ and you, and you live 
uh, the best kind of life that you could live, then you'll be okay. And I'm sure that Paul would want to hit you on the head if he said that. Or rather, he'd say, yeah, yeah, that would be true, but the trouble is it's a nil category. There's nobody of whom that's true. There's, there is no salvation by works, whether you've heard the gospel or not. Salvation is by grace and by faith, whether you've heard the gospel or not. So anybody only gets saved by God's grace, and anybody only gets saved by trusting in God. Maybe it's the case that there are people outside of um, Old Testament and New Testament, outside of the Christian faith and whatnot, who have um, put their trust in God as the creator, as you put it, and are justified by faith on that basis. Maybe, that, maybe that's the case. But, but if, they are, if there are, that's, that's how it works on the basis of trusting God. It's not on the basis of doing the living a, a good kind of life. Because the, while scripture is not explicit on whether there could be people outside of scripture, outside of the Jewish Christian faith, who um, get saved because of trust in the Creator, it is explicit that nobody gets saved on the basis of living the right kind of life. Okay, that's more than 25 minutes. Now let's have 10 minutes in which you tell the person next to you the things that you put on your Moodle thing about verses that have come home to you or insights from the prophets that have come home to you and do that with each other and if you get bored, turn the other side and do it with the person on the other side. Okay? Go. <coughs> Yes, people have been. Uh, uh, do, uh, the second, um, no, people were writing responses to the Haggai and whatnot ones, weren't they? Have people been writing responses to those questions ones? Doesn't look like it. Okay, it looks like we can say no. Hooray! <laughs> Sorry? Uh, I can't remember. Yeah. So you want questions Yeah. Okay. So so you are doing responses to Haggai and Zechariah and all that, but you needn't do responses to the. What are you laughing at now? Okay. Uh, yep. You've been doing it for five weeks now. You're not. You're, you're an expert. Oh no, you don't turn your papers in on Moodle. Okay, oh! oh. You, you, your paper, as it says in the syllabus there, <laughs> uh, you turn your paper in as an, as an attachment to me. You email your paper to me, and I email it back. No, no Moodle crap for that. Because <laughs> you see, I like to grade the paper sitting in the Hollywood Bowl or somewhere, and I may not have internet access, so if they come as, uh, as emails, I would like to do Right, okay, a few more of these questions. Um, on a random note, which prophet do you enjoy reading the most? I think the answer to that question is whichever, same as when people ask me what course I enjoy teaching, it's whichever one I'm teaching at the moment. <laughs> uh, you'll be pleased to know, perhaps. Uh, so, it's with, I, I don't know, yeah, with profit, uh, do you enjoy, enjoy, you're not supposed to enjoy reading profit. <laughs> 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 um, enjoy reading the most. I've written most of Isaiah. 
So that proves something, I suppose. Or rather, I mean, Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I may be a megalomaniac, but not those things. <laughs> um, I'd like to hear more about the political, this is number 38. I'd like to hear, hear more about the political ramifications of the prophets giving messages about other nations. Though I understand that nations do not need a covenant with Yahweh to understand that certain actions are wrong, I'm confused about the extent to which the prophets expect people outside the covenant to live according to the expectations of their covenant with God. No, I don't think they have to. They expect it to do that. The expectation is, well, like, uh, yeah, the expectation is that everybody knows that uh, doing those nasty things to pregnant women that Amos talks about are wrong. Nobody needs a revelation of that, um, and therefore the nations are responsible for uh, that kind of thing that they do. Um, now, sometimes, very occasionally, say maybe when Isaiah 24 talks about talks about an everlasting covenant with the nations. Maybe same as the Noah covenant. Maybe there is the expectation or background that they are in covenant relationship with that Yahweh in that broader sense. But that doesn't mean there's any covenant exp expectations apart from the ones that Old Testament and New Testament assumes apply to everybody, to all nations, by virtue of their being made in God's image um, and hardwired with some awareness of something that are right and wrong. When prophets speak to the person on stage and to the house, does the message place expectations on the nations, or is it mostly to inform Israel about what God is doing? If both, does one receive more weight than the other? That's a good question. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, in other words, when second Isaiah say, um, now first, it's easier with first Isaiah, when, when Isaiah is talking to the Judeans, he's talking on the stage to, to the Philistines or the Assyrians or something, um, and the but, but the people designed immediately to hear the message are the people in the house, i.e. the people of Judah. Uh, does that place expectations on the Assyrians? Well, it can't play, exactly place expectations on them if they don't hear. Um, but it implies that God has expectations for the reason I was talking about just now. That is, um, as I said earlier, that's to do with regard to Assyria. Isaiah um, uh, assumes and God assumes that when the Assyrian emperor, emperor behaves as if he's God, um, the Assyrian emperor, emperor ought to know that he's not God. He ought to know that he's doing the wrong thing. Ought to know that he's terrifying himself. Um, um, yeah. Um, so the, the purpose of the passage, of the prophecy is mostly to, well, entirely, to inform Israel about what God is doing. But its presupposition is but the thing that's going on on the stage is also going on for real, as it were, in this other context. Um, and so, God, so, so both, both angles, what's going on on the stage and what's going on in the house, both what God is saying to Judah about Assyria and what God is saying to Assyria are both important. Now, here's what I mentioned earlier. Even though we've talked about the connection between Jesus and the Old Testament prophecies a little bit, I feel like we may have skirted the subject a little bit. I'd really like to know more about the ways in which Jesus fulfilled some of the prophecies and in some ways in which he didn't. Well, he fulfilled the one about um, Micah, Micah saying about being born in Bethlehem. Uh, I can't remember many other things that actually were prophecies in the prophets that Jesus then did. 
because uh, the, the other, the categories on either side of that are, there are lots of things that the prophets said were going to happen that Jesus hasn't done. Now, there's, there's no lions, lions lying down with lambs and that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, and there's lots of things that, that the prophets talked about but weren't talking about the future that Jesus did do, and that the interesting guy said, oh, that's just like it says back in the prophets. Like, say, the virgin shall conceive, which, for the sake of argument, uh, is about somebody who's going to have a baby in our last day, and Matthew sees that as a really important So there's kind of three categories there. There's things that we can say that God is intent on doing, which Jesus hasn't done yet, which I said earlier, Jesus will do one day. There's things that the prophets say the Messiah will do, and that have when they're talking about something quite different. And Jesus came and did something like that. Uh, and Matthew or somebody says, oh, that's just like what the prophet said. When the, so the, the hermeneutical arrow in my first two examples goes from the prophets into the New Testament. The hermeneutical arrow in my last example goes from the New Testament into the prophets. Another thing that I really helped me out of Karl Barth, the Blessed, um, is in pointing to a verse in Corinthians, and I'm sorry I haven't got the reference. I'll see if I can find it while I'm talking. Uh, or something, one of you see, yeah, something might be able to find it. Where, where Paul, somewhere in, Corinthians, in one of the Corinthian letters, says that, that all God's promises find their yes in Christ. Second Corinthians? What a king you are! <laughs> Yes, I think you're wrong. <laughs> no, I, think it's near, I think it's near the beginning somewhere. Um, or just the, it's either the first or the last chapter. <laughs> uh, yeah, because, yeah, you know, languages, you know, some languages go right to left and some go left. Um, yes, 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 you're a, you're a genius. Um, or the second level genius, because it's chapter one. Two printing writing. Um, no, sorry, it's. Uh, 20. In Christ, every one of God's promises is a yes. All God's promises find their yes in Christ as a more traditional translation. Um, and, and what Bart, then Bart's gloss on that is, that that doesn't say, well, significantly, it doesn't say that Jesus fulfilled all God's promises. Uh, it says that Jesus confirmed all God's promises. That is, the reason why you know that God's, purpose, God's commitment to peace and justice will be fulfilled is because Jesus came. Not that Jesus actually did that, but that Jesus' coming is the confirmation uh, of, um, of, of all God's promises, including that one. So it's not the fulfillment of all the promises, but it is a, it is a confirmation of all the promises. And I find that really helpful. 41. Do you think there is a general progression in the prophets in terms of the message and preparation for the New Testament? I don't think there's any general progression in the Old Testament at all. Um, the, uh, the, the highest level of insight in the Old Testament is in Genesis 1 and 2. We can't get any further back than that. Uh, everything after that is kind of compromising with problems, really. Um, so, no, there's no, there's no progression, uh, I don't think, in the Old Testament at all. Um, and, and so, often, people talk about progressive revelation which is a baptized version of evolution, so it must be really bad. Um, uh, whereas the Old Testament doesn't believe in progress, it only believes in regress. 
Things were great at the beginning. After that, they were terrible. So, would you say that there's a definite regression then from the Genesis 1 all the way down to... Well, not a continuous. No, no I mean, there's a pretty much a regression between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, isn't there? Well, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, it kind of goes like that. It goes, 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 goes around and then... do you think is most faithful to the original text when it comes to the First Testament? Several times you've noted places where the NSV obscures some aspect of the meaning. That's true, I've read the word thing. And I've done it because it happens to be the translation that I'm using here, and it's, it's, the reason why I'm using it here is because I like it most. So you should see what I do to the other translations. <laughs> <laughs> all, all translations are more or less faithful to the original, thank you. Um, all translations are more or less faithful to the original text. No translation is better than another. They, they, they're just different in the way they handle different sorts of questions. The NRSV is, is still working with the cadences of the King James Bible. Um, the TNIV, which I like, which I like a lot also, uh, I like a lot. It starts starting from scratch much more. Um, the Jerusalem Bible I like because it uses Yahweh instead of using Lord. Lots of different translations have got the strengths and weaknesses like that. They're all more. It's not a question about accuracy. They're all more. They're all done by people like Joel Green. Um, Oh yeah, I'm curious about the verse in Ezekiel 18 that talks about how God is just and how each person is accountable for their own sin. How do you parallel that with the verses throughout the Old Testament that talk about how sin follows children to the third and fourth generation? Uh, a couple of things about that. Um, one is that the, the focus, typically, we read that as being about the individual, whereas Ezekiel is talking about the community, he's talking about generations. That is, uh, Ezekiel is dealing with a collection of people, um, a, a generation, who think that their destiny is sorted by what their parents did. And you can't blame them because they're in exile, partly as a result of what their parents did. Um, and so they are depressed, distressed about whether there's any possibility of them being faithful to God, of, them, of God being, uh, of being back in relationship with God. Um, and so Ezekiel's job in that context is to say, every generation stands before God. The fact that you um, are, have been on the receiving end of God's punishment, the fact that you are the, the people who are the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren of people who worship God other than Yahweh and worship by means of images and whatnot, that doesn't let you off the hook, nor does it consign you inevitably to the dustbin um, trash bin of history. Uh, you stand before God now. You can turn to God now. That's Ezekiel's point. Um, and that's true. But but the but but the the thing that the Ten Commandments say and other passages say about the sins of the fathers being visited on the children and the grandchildren, the third and fourth generation, that's true as well. That that that's that's what's happened to these people that Ezekiel was talking uh, to. So it's not that uh, again a, a bit of this pro a, a non-existent progressive revelation that people used to believe in is in the early part of the Old Testament they believed in corporate. Um, responsibility experience. And later on they saw the light and realized that it was all individual. Well, that's what we would think, isn't it? Because that's what we think, so we think that we're the light. Whereas actually the opposite is the truth. We, we need to discover that reality of, uh, 
the way, the way in which the corporate affects us all, that we are who we are um, because we live in Southern California. Well, a lot of us are what we are because we, we are the terrible victims of the culture in which we live. We kid ourselves that we're individuals, but we're not. We're just part of a culture. Um, we kid ourselves that we're independent, but we're actually shaped by our parents. So, so that both, both, those tr both those things are true. And, and I suggest we know both those things are true. Because somebody's had a terrible upbringing, you don't say to them, okay, well, don't bother trying to be good. Uh, everybody is challenged to respond in their own individuals and general, in their own time, even while recognizing at the same time the reality of the way in which the sense of the and, and so again, it's a question of what time is it? That is, do, does Ezekiel know that, that the people he is addressing need to be challenged uh, to, uh, to, to, to turn to God uh, and not be paralyzed or let themselves off the hook um, by the fact that they are influenced by who the parents were? Yeah. But in other contexts, it's very, very important to say, particularly to parents, realize that what you do has a decisive effect upon your children and your grandchildren. How do you live your life differently because of your deep understanding of the Old Testament? What do you do to reconcile these stories with the way you live your life today? It's getting a bit personal. Um, <laughs> 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 I've no idea what the answer to those questions is. Um, I thought I might get inspired as I read the question out, but I didn't. <laughs> Now that, this, that the pattern of humanity's sin has been made clear, what do we do as a church? Amen. It seems as if all throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites and God's people have followed this pattern of sinning with God, dealing with the consequences of their sin, and then God gives them another chance to return to Him. My question is, how many times do we have to do this? Is this simply going to continue until Jesus returns? Yeah, if we're lucky. I mean, because I wouldn't like to be stuck in um, dealing with the consequences of sin, I mean, you wouldn't want the cycle to stop there, would you? So praise God, it's possible to get out of this. It isn't necessary for the Church of California to die in 20 years' time. It's possible that the challenge to our generation is to respond, is to pray, uh, is to preach. Um, and uh, God could have mercy on us. But very likely that, um, uh, you know, that, that, well, given that that cycle has gone on for the 2,000, for the thousand years from... Moses to Jesus, maybe two thousand years since. Um, it would be unwise to assume that it won't go on unless God does this amazing thing when the um, not yet stops being not yet and everything becomes now. But God's going to do that, right? Okay, I'm blessing for you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace.